Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. The early days of college basketball recruiting were nothing like today, where a coach can just go to YouTube and pull up the highlights of any player that he is interested in. The coach can also check various rating services to see where a player is ranked in the entire country for his grade or position. There is so much information out there now about nearly every significant player. Of course, the job now is to be able to sift through all of that data to determine which players are worth going after and which are not. But it was not always that way. In the old days, trying to get good information information on a player practically required the research and deduction skills of Sherlock Holmes, but something changed in 1965 that impacted the recruiting of high school players forever. This is the story of the Dapper Dan Roundball Classic, and this is Basketball History 101. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we are bringing you the story of the Dapper Dan Roundball Classic. Spoiler alert! The game does not exist anymore. They played their final game in 2007, but their legacy and impact on the world of college recruiting still remains. Prior to 1965, there were no national high school all-star games. There was virtually no way to properly compare a player from California with a star player from Pennsylvania. Coaches simply had to attend as many high school games as they could to see a certain player and make the best judgment that they could. That always proved difficult. For a coach to tell if a player was truly talented, he had to have an idea of the talent of his competition. Now here's what I mean by that. A player who scores 25 points per game for a small rural high school in the middle of Nebraska is not necessarily the same thing as scoring 25 points per game for a high school in Brooklyn, where there is some of the most serious basketball talent anywhere. Now that is what made it so hard for college coaches to tell if a player was really that good or if the competition was so weak that any half-decent player could score 25 points. Now I will give you a real-world example of this challenge. Back in the spring of 1996, Kobe Bryant was playing in his final year of high school basketball. Seeing as that his father, Joe Bryant, was a former NBA player, the Bryant family lived in an upper-class suburb of Philadelphia. Young Kobe was destroying the competition, but many evaluators questioned his numbers. Kobe, playing for Lower Marion High School, mostly played against other upper-class suburban high schools. The competition there was not considered as strong as inner-city Philadelphia, where Rashid Wallace had been very successful recently. 
Now, let me be clear. I am not trying to insult suburban basketball versus inner city basketball or anything like that. And I'm not even trying to insult Nebraska basketball for that matter. I believe that good basketball players can come from anywhere, but these are some of the real perceptions that evaluators bring to the table. Now, getting back to our example of Kobe Bryant, were Kobe's numbers the result of being extremely talented or the result of playing against weaker competition? Of course, we all know the story about Kobe. He was one of the all-time great basketball players in history, but at the time, some people had legitimate questions about his skill level. What many did not know about Kobe at the time was that he was regularly playing pickup games against Division I college players like his future teammate Eddie Jones from Temple University, located in Philadelphia. Kobe more than held his own against top college players. So, was it possible to bring together some of the best players in the entire country and put them all together on one court? In the 1960s, that seemed impossible, but along came a guy by the name of Sonny Vaccaro. Now, you might recognize the name because Sonny Vaccaro is one of the most influential people in the basketball world, and I mean the entire basketball world. He has been influential in high school, college, and professional basketball. I could do an entire episode on Sonny Vaccaro because he is that big of a name in the world of basketball. Now, I'll just give you one quick story about Vaccaro. He was the guy who invented the concept of the signature basketball shoe. He was working for Nike back in the 1980s and convinced the leadership of the company that the best way to get Michael Jordan to sign with them over Converse or Adidas was to pitch a signature shoe line called the Air Jordans, along with an entire line of signature athletic wear like warm-ups, t-shirts, hats, etc. Today, every megastar in the NBA has his own signature shoe, but Vaccaro was the guy who invented the concept. And I go deeper into that story back in episode 139 on the creation of the Air Jordans. But for today, I will just talk about his first really big basketball idea that put his name on the national map in terms of basketball influence. He, along with his boyhood friend, Pat DeSassari, came up with the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic. As they were both from Pittsburgh, they decided to play the game in their hometown. The idea of the game was to put together a team of the best players from the entire state of Pennsylvania and then have them play against a team of the best players from the rest of the country. It was an enormous idea at the time. This was the first national high school all-star game, and he wanted to see all of the best players in the entire country together in one place. Now, for the first time, college coaches could see all of the so-called best players playing together and they would know very quickly which players were for real and which players were just hype and reputation. He sold the idea by partnering with the Dapper Dan Charities of Pittsburgh. That is where the game got its name. All of the profits from the game would go to that charity. Now, up until the Dapper Dan, Vaccaro had been a high school teacher and a basketball enthusiast. He would regularly organize basketball tournaments in order to try to get the best schools playing against each other because that would draw fans, which meant ticket sales. Vaccaro personally wanted to see the best teams playing against the other best teams, and he worked to make that happen. And this is how the idea of the Dapper Dan came to be. The game also gave him clout with college coaches. All of the big name coaches wanted to attend the game and even see the practices in the days leading up to the game. For any college coach, this was a no-brainer. You make one trip and you get to see 24 of the best players in the country all at once. Coaches even began recommending to Vaccaro which players to invite to the Dapper Dan game. Vaccaro was now in a position to curry favors from these college coaches. But the game itself was an absolute hit. They sold over 10,000 tickets for the first game in 1965, and that is a strong start for something that had never been done before. 
and off they went. Once the reputation of the game grew and the word got out, some of the best players in the country were now hoping to get an invitation to the game. Some players were even contacting Vaquero asking for an invitation. After all, even the best players want to play against the other best players. Also, through this game, the network of recruiting really developed. Up until then, some colleges were recruiting players without even having seen them play. They were recruiting players by word of mouth. But the Dapper Dan changed the recruiting landscape, at least for those elite players that had the talent to turn around any college program. At the end of the game, they gave out two MVP awards, one for each team. In the 1966 game, the MVP for the US team was future Hall of Famer, Calvin Murphy. Now, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with the rest of the Dapper Dan Classic story, including their eventual demise. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic. As I mentioned, the game was an immediate hit, not only with fans, but with the players, and especially with college coaches. Anytime that you look up into the stands, it was practically a who's who of top college coaches looking to pounce on these players and bring them into their programs. Eventually, the game started to become lopsided. I mean, just think about it. One team had all of the best players from one state, Pennsylvania, while the other team had all of the best players from the rest of the country. At one point, the United States team won 9 out of 11 games, so it was time to update the format. There was also another event that had a direct impact on the Dapper Dan game. It was called the McDonald's All-American Game. The Dapper Dan was so successful that some organizers in Washington, D.C. put together their own version of the game with McDonald's as the leading sponsor. They played their first game in 1978 with the best players from the United States and Canada. Their game was also a big hit with fans and coaches. Vaquero felt that he had to do something, and he had a great idea to address both issues. He did not want to break up the Pennsylvania team because the game was played in Pennsylvania and it gave the local fans a team to root for. Here is what he did. He doubled the number of players invited and put them on four teams. Now there was still a team from Pennsylvania, but now there were three other teams from the Southwest, Midwest, and East. And they played this format in 1979 as a semi-finals format. The two winners played each other the next day and the two losing teams would also play each other the next day. The Dapper Dan Classic was now four games over two days with double the players. But they only did that one time 
time, in the 1980, they went back to the old format of Pennsylvania versus the United States. For the players, it was always prestigious to be invited to the Dapper Dan game, but now there was a new level of prestige to be had. Every player wanted to be one of the very few that got invited to both the Dapper Dan and the McDonald's game. Every year, there were about 8 or 10 players that played in both games. These players were generally considered to be the cream of the crop. Over time, the McDonald's game became the bigger attraction and was considered the better game. The Dapper Dan game lost a bit of its shine. It was an even bigger blow in the early 1990s when both Nike and the Dapper Dan charities pulled their sponsorship of the game. Vaccaro then moved the game to Detroit and found a new sponsor in Magic Johnson. The game was given a new name the Magic Johnson Round Ball. In the meantime, Vaquero's old partner, Pat DeCesari, started a new All-Star game back in Pittsburgh, but he could never really get the top players to participate, so it died after only two years. In any case, the Magic Johnson version of the game continued in Detroit to big success and lots of ticket sales. Again, this was a bonanza for college coaches. It looked like an NCAA basketball coaches convention in that place as they were all there to watch the best players and try to nail down commitments. After seven years in Detroit, Magic Johnson ended his sponsorship. The game moved again to Charlotte, North Carolina and eventually to Chicago, but the pressure was always on Vaccaro to keep the game at an elite level with elite players participating. And of course, sponsorship was key. Without good sponsorship, it made it difficult to keep costs down. And another thing happened that put even more pressure on. In 2002, the folks at Nike organized the Brand Jordan Classic, another national-level all-star game that was initially played in Washington, D.C. and then moved to New York for a number of years. And which high school kid would not want to play in the Jordan game? At each of these all-star games, the players received a duffel bag full of free gear from the sponsoring companies. With the Jordan game, each player received a free pair of Air Jordans along with a whole bunch of other stuff, and they got to meet Michael Jordan, who made it a point to spend some time with the players. I mean, where would you want to play? In a game where you could meet Ronald McDonald or a game where you could meet Michael Jordan? The NCAA was also not doing Vaccaro any favors. They put in a rule that said that a high school player could not play in more than two of these national all-star games or else they would lose their college eligibility. Players had to choose which games they were going to play in. They could not participate in all of them, and that made it really tough for Vaquero's round ball classic. One lifeline that he got was in 2003 when LeBron James accepted the invitation to play in the round ball, which was moved to the United Center in Chicago where the Bulls play. They knew that with LeBron in the game, they needed the biggest arena they could find and the United Center fit the bill. That would mean a lot of ticket sales. In fact, they sold out the place for that game. Now this was great for the round ball classic because in the early 2000s, most of the very top players were choosing to play in the Jordan and McDonald's games as their two all-star games. Vaquero's round ball was no longer getting the super elite players anymore, again, except for LeBron. That year, LeBron decided to play in all three all-star games because he did not care about NCAA eligibility. Everybody knew he was going to be the first pick in the NBA draft that year. So, fun fact, LeBron James is still the only player to participate in all three major national all-star games. In 2007, reality struck and Vaquero decided to make that year the last round ball classic. And I have to give the guy credit. 
He kept that game going for 43 years, bringing in the best high school talent from around the country into one place. He made friends and connections with hundreds of coaches, and he ended up working for Nike, Adidas, and Reebok at different points in his career. For a guy who never played or coached, he became one of the most influential people in all of basketball and made friends with every significant player and coach along the way. If you Google Sonny Vaccaro, you will see photos of him with Jordan, Kobe, Carmelo, and practically every other significant player that came along the way, along with pictures of him with all the main coaches. Here is a quick list of some of the players who have won the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic MVP awards. Patrick Ewing, Dominique Wilkins, Rod Strickland, Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Webber, Rashid Wallace, LeBron James, and Kevin Love. While the Dapper Dan Roundball Classic no longer exists, the impact that it had is still being felt in the world of high school basketball and college recruiting. Sonny Vaccaro can take credit for that. It was a great idea at the right time. Well, that is it for today. Join us next time when we share the story of Ozzy Schechtman. He was the player credited with scoring the very first basket in NBA history. So technically speaking, for about two minutes, Schechtman was the NBA's all-time leading scorer with two points. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I will also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman aka the football history dude and i wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the sports history network our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear and if you didn't know it already we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics in fact here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network this is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.